Good morning, all. We are in a series at the moment called Boulders. To be honest, we've only just started. Previously, two weeks ago, we did an introduction, and this is part one, I guess, even though it's filed as part two. It's all really based on this book called Sustainable Power by a man called Simon Holly. How we came to the book is, is slightly irrelevant for a minute, but the point was, we were saying to God, what Asher Vineyard has been doing to bring life to Ashford has been amazing. And, and lots of people have given hours and hours and hours and continue to. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's a most generous community. But we, what we observe in the life of Jesus is his ability to be able to see 5,000 people who are hungry. And rather than try and find 5,000 volunteers who can each feed a person and set a doodle pole and a rotor and everything else, not that there's anything wrong with all those things, is actually Jesus had the ability to supernaturally go beyond what you can do in the natural, hence supernatural. And we have really been saying to God, God, we want this. We want more of this. We see evidence of it. Of course we do. But we also, we want to see more of it. We want to see lives being changed, yes, in the natural, but also in the supernatural. We want to see them changed like a next level up almost. You know what I, I understand what we mean by that, yeah? So we ended up coming upon this book and we found, Nick and I particularly found, and the, and the cluster leaders, that really he was asking Simon Holly in this book a lot of the questions almost verbatim that we have been asking, the very same things. The difference for them is they are a bit further on and he's writing back to us, I like to think, answering some of our questions. The premise of the book is really this. As you can see, it's from the book of John, one of the Gospels, one of the uh, books in the New Testament that tells the stories of Jesus. It says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit will flow out of them like a river. Not flow into them, flow out of them like a river. The continued premise then is, well, if we have the rivers of God's power, as Jesus promised that we would, but it feels like we're experiencing only a trickle, then something must be blocking the Spirit's flow. Assuming there's no problem with the source of the river, if the river is stopping and it's become a trickle, then something must be in the way. And there's certainly no problem with the source. If God promises uh, that rivers of living water will flow, then rivers of living water will flow. And if we're not seeing that, then it, 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 the problem probably isn't on God's end. It's, it's, it's almost definitely on ours. So what this particular church did, what Simon did with some of his other leaders, was that they felt God take them through what some of the boulders were for them. This didn't happen all at once. This happened over a, a period of a little bit of time. But this is what the main boulders were for this church seeing more of the Holy Spirit moving, seeing more supernatural things. Self-reliance, fear, judgment, control, unbelief, and we'll probably separate out disappointment and offence. 
This is Simon's story. Apologies. I am not checking Facebook. It's on my Kindle, which I then forgot, but I have the Kindle app on my phone. So to give a bit of background, Simon and his wife, Caroline. Caroline is, is American, and they were, that's not why they were, but they were having a few issues in their marriage. Not like divorce issues, but issues nonetheless. And Simon was very pleased when Caroline decided to go back home for a holiday, back home to America, and that she was going to get some counselling off this infamous lady called Diane. So Caroline went, she sat in front of Diane, and when finally Caroline came back home, she explained everything to Simon, and Simon was most relieved to find out that in actual fact, Diane hadn't agreed with her that the whole problem was Simon, and that actually she had said, actually most of the problem is with you. So Simon, um, he tells this all a bit tongue-in-cheek, he said he felt vindicated, and he was really thrilled, and he did a bit of air punching. I knew it. I knew the problem was with her. Let's face it, um, any husbands in here, we don't get that glory very often, do we? So he relished that as much as he could. But he saw such a transformation in his wife that he decided, do you know what? I think I want to go and see this lady as well. So six months later, I had my chance. It was Christmas 2005. Diane had agreed to see me over two days in the run-up to Christmas. I made myself comfortable on Diane's sofa and waited to begin. I can only describe this day as the spiritual version of the time when I deep-cleansed the barbecue after I'd forgotten to clean it the winter, before the winter, and opened the lid six months later to find two inches of green hair growing in the bottom of it. Hard work, but what a difference. Layers of grime and muck that had stained my soul and been encrusted after years of neglect in the deep recesses of my heart were cleaned out that day. And I still feel the effects of it as I write this some years later. The next morning, Diane had invited another man, Brother Nelson, to pray with us. I'm not sure why he was called Brother Nelson, because he wasn't a monk, but when he happily settled into calling each other Brother Nelson and Brother Simon, after an hour of talking, Brother Nelson came to what he had discerned was a key issue for me. Have you ever repented of the sin of pride, Brother Simon? He asked. My immediate response was, but I'm not a proud person. He didn't look pleased. Apparently, this was the wrong answer. It's not the pride of haughtiness or arrogance, he pressed, but the pride of self-reliance. In a moment, it seemed as if the room grew very still. The presence of the Holy Spirit was palpable as I had a flashback of the first time in my life when I had taken the road of self-reliance. I knew that it was the first of many. Whenever I'd read about pride in the Bible, I'd always presumed it meant arrogance and neatly slipped myself off the hook. Suddenly, horrendously, on Diane's sofa, I realised that I was guilty of pride in a mountain-sized way. I fell on my knees under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and received massive freedom from a spiritual stronghold that I had never even seen was there. I returned home transformed. Some people even said that I looked different, and I'm rather hoping they thought I was more handsome. That is Simon's story. You don't really find the term self-reliance in the Bible. In fact, I couldn't find it anywhere. 
However, evidence of it is littered throughout the pages, and the Bible really mainly refers to it as pride. So, of course, pride can be haughtiness or arrogance, but it can also be self-reliance. And it is in the Bible, honestly, from Genesis, the first book, all the way through to, Genesis, to Revelation, the last book. Everywhere, in every book, at some point, sometimes in multiple points. Thing is, most people have probably decided at some point, if they are a Christian, someone who said yes to Jesus, they've decided at some point, God, I'm going to live for you. And they say those words, God, I'm going to live for you. Their voice has barely finished reverberating before they're probably already epically failing at it. Because we can decide we're going to live for God and we are going to live fully reliant on him. But actually, much of the time, we can actually live fixing problems ourselves, dealing with issues ourselves. And God is really a last resort. I've done everything else. There's nothing left. I'm going to have to pray. And if that doesn't work, it's going to have to go on the prayer tree. We've all done it. I continue to do it to some degree. But let me get on to my story. To you, this will look like a chair in a field, and you'd be right. It is a chair in a field. You wouldn't know where it is. And Well, if you do know where that is and you weren't in the first service, I am thoroughly impressed. It's actually in Crowhurst in East Sussex. And I went to a conference at Crowhurst Christian Healing Centre four years ago. And this chair and this field and this moment has some significance, which I'm coming on to in just a sec. So my parents divorced when I was six. These things happen. Both my mum and my dad did their best, but as parents, it doesn't mean that we don't fall short. We all know that if we're parents. I don't remember hurting over it particularly, but like for many, it added to a father wound that I had, a wound in my soul that said, among other things, that people can't be relied on. I grew up never really knowing my worth. My parents' divorce didn't help, but that wasn't the cause. There were definitely wider reasons. So I found my worth and my affirmation in three main things. Girls, being good at stuff, and being dependable. Girls were great. And when you could get the affection of them, it made you feel pretty awesome. The hotter the girl, the better you felt. It's true. Okay, that's fine. Men, well done for not responding to that. But that is true. That is how it worked. You go into a party and you decide, who's the hottest girl in the room? That's the one I will go after. Being good at stuff was just that. I was good at sport, music, largely good at school. I had a bit of a blip around my GCSEs, but we won't talk about that. Um, I was largely sort of humorous and able to make people laugh. I was on the school council and all kinds of other things. I was dependable. And being dependable meant I could always be relied upon by anyone, particularly those in authority who I longed to please. 
So there we have it. They were, those, they were the three things that I used to try and pet myself up, to try and give me some worth and some value. Girls being good at stuff and being dependable. But the trouble with the girls bit is it only ticks that box if you're receiving their affection. The chase really was, honestly, the thrill. Being good at stuff. Well, that seemed okay. But the thing is, if you were really good at stuff, you had to carry on being good at stuff because it was, the only, it was the only thing you could do that would give you more satisfaction. Roger Federer and I share this problem. No. <laughs> For the benefit of the recording, I gave an ironic glance, which the recording won't have seen. Thing was... When you're good at stuff, not brilliant at stuff, but when you're good at stuff, you become the person that everyone wants to see fall. That's how it works in Britain. In America, you're championed. In Britain, we just can't wait to see you fall. We don't really like anyone in power. And if we're really honest, we don't really like people being good at stuff. We actually find it quite irritating. It's just the British way. So I was always the person to beat. I belonged to a youth club, and we, it doesn't matter what kind of tournament we had any kind of sporting thing, I was one of the ones to beat. And when I was beaten, everyone cheered. And when I won, everyone groaned. It didn't give me a lot of satisfaction, no matter how many trophies could ever get lined up on a shelf. That's the trouble with being good at stuff and you relying on that for how you feel. It's all right until you fail. So I was pretty dependable. That was another good thing. I used to please people in authority because I was quite reliable and didn't really go off the rails too badly. The trouble is, there is a horrible truism, which is generally, you are only as good as your last action. For anyone who's screwed up big time, you'll know this. It doesn't matter how many of the many thousands of good decisions you made before that decision, when you make that decision, it becomes what you are remembered for. So there we have it. They were my three crutches, if you like. They were the three things I used. And even though I had a mum and stepdad with whom I lived and a dad and stepmum with whom I didn't, to be honest, I lived more like an orphan. I had somehow resolved in my own heart that I had to make my own way and strive for significance and value. It felt like you were in a fast-moving vehicle that you couldn't seem to get off, and no matter what came at you, you had to keep it together. Even giving my yes to Jesus at the tender age of 13 didn't change the already ingrained way of living. So, I recognized this in myself, and I decided that I would start trying to fix this problem, because I'm an excellent fixer. I have a great brain ability to perceive things, thankfully to some degree in the spiritual realm as well, but I normally can see an issue and reasonably well fix it. So I thought, I need to fix this father thing. So I read lots of books about being fathered by God, many of them. 
I prayed and I prayed. I got up at 5 a.m. and I would pray and I would fast and I would strive and I would be about the best Christian there was. I ticked every God box I could think of, but for many years I continued to live just as an orphan. Due to my dad's own issues, he's never really been able to be the kind of dad that models to me what it is to be celebrated, delighted in, and proud of. Surprise, surprise, this meant that I then struggled to receive this from Father God too. He was a God for whom I had to perform. I had to keep doing my best. I had to keep trying. I couldn't fail. That's orphan living. That's how orphans live, by default, in fear, lurching from one validating situation to another. So what you're seeing here is a photo from my journal, Friday the 16th of May. And this is what I wrote. This is the place where the orphan heart in me was broken. Through tears, I felt a lightness come and I felt truth replace lies. As I forgave my dad and asked for forgiveness for filling that gap and wound with other things, so the tears flowed. God came and like a spirit of sonship began to wash in. I'm typing this because as long as I live, I want to remember this moment. Father, please help me to move forward from this point. While the power has been broken, I realize that some patterns of behavior will remain. Please prompt me to deal with these as soon as and when they come up. I give you permission to highlight them to me and then give me the grace to do something about them. So the orphan heart, the problem with it is it has a self-sufficiency. It is defined, the orphan heart, really. If you said to most people, what's an orphan or what is an orphan heart? What is the feeling that you're living like an orphan? Most people would say, well, it's like you haven't got a mum and a dad because that's what they understand orphan to mean. But I would say the trademark, the trademark of someone who lives like an orphan is they have come to rely on themselves. It is down to them. Everything is down to them. I still fall foul of it. I fell foul of it today. It's still habits that I have to try and break out of. So on the way down this morning, relatively early, I got here for 7.30, and I was walking down the hill, I even had worship music on, even then. And what I did was on the way down, I said, God, please, we need, I long for you to move this morning. Obviously, I knew what the subject matter was. I prepared the talk, obviously. Uh, so I knew what it was about, and I said, oh, God, I long for you to move. And then immediately, I said, God, I know I've been a bit busy the last few days, like not necessarily diary busy, although it has been, but more like I've just had lots of things. We were a wedding all day yesterday and lots and lots of things going on. And I felt like I hadn't been as attentive as I would really like to have been. So therefore, I felt like, well, God isn't going to come and move because I haven't earned the right for him to come and move. And there it is again. Since when do we earn anything from God? It's not man that anyone can boast. 
says Paul, super church planter man. In Wild at Heart, a book by John Eldridge, he says that men and women each live with a key question that needs to be answered. Has anyone read this book? Wow. Men particularly, you need to get it. The man's question that he needs to live with, that he lives with and longs to be answered is this. Have I got what it takes? Have I got what it takes? Oh, I see it in men all the time. Have I got what it takes? When they go past with their super fast, loud car and the window down and lowered suspension. I sometimes call after them in a Christian way. You've got what it takes. <laughs> For women, John Eldridge says the question is this, am I enough? Am I enough? The answer to both these questions and others, of course, is found in the extravagant, overwhelming, unconditional, reckless, crazy love of the Father. It's the safe place, the only safe place that is forever bathed in acceptance, delight, love and wholeness. I'm going to show you a little video to try to prove this point or show this point anyway. This is of, there's a number of these online, but this is of a military uh, person who's come home from, uh, I think, six months in this instance, six months tour of somewhere. And what they've done is the dad has come to the school what you need to watch, really, is it's about the son's reaction. This boy, obviously, the, these analogies fall down slightly because God doesn't go away for six months on tour or dealing with Australia or anything else. But what you see in this boy is you see that he is not an orphan. And I don't mean because he's got a dad. You look at his face, you look at how he responds, and nothing about that in any way has an, an, like an orphan heart. He knows that safe place. He knows where that safe place is. Just, um, just watch this. We tie a yellow ribbon on the tree. They write their family member on it and we leave the ribbon up on the tree until the, the parent comes back from deployment. Keep going, it's behaving strangely. for some of us, some people, we've lost dads and those images and that idea is painful. And forgive me, that's not really where we're going with this. We're really trying to deal more with, many of us can live like we haven't got a dad, even when we have one. And I don't particularly mean, I don't mean an earthly dad for a moment. That's another pain. You see, God showed himself as a father. That's why Jesus came predominantly to reveal 
who the father is because the Old Testament and all the things that have gone before in the first bit of the Bible just couldn't really quite cut it. People misunderstood who God was. So as you can see there on this slide, God showed himself as a father being mentioned 15 times in the Old Testament, but being called father 245 times in the New Testament. And Jesus spent a lot of time trying to explain and correct and steer and guide his disciples from their misunderstanding of who God was. So, for example, he said, you don't need to look to approve for approval from other people, but instead, your heavenly father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Your father sees you. He spoke to them, um, he spoke to them about how they needed to pray. And he said, this is how you pray. Our father, dad, papa, our father. He taught his disciples about how generous God is and said, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? Your father. How much more will your father do this? He said, don't worry about life or death. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your father knowing about it. There's so many examples Jesus modelled, many, one after the other. The prodigal son, that poorly named story that Jesus told, is really should be called the parable of, of the extravagant dad who sees the sun coming from afar and runs. He was waiting. That dad was waiting and watching, totally distracted. Had other people running the farm who probably came to ask him questions. And he, they probably said, can you come and help us out with this? And the dad would say, I, I can't, I can't leave here. I'm looking out for my son. I still need to do this every single day. I'm terrible for self-reliance. I'm terrible for it. It hasn't got a strong hold over me like it used to, but it's still a habit thing. It's still a thing where I tend to, by default, try and fix things myself. You know if you've got this problem because you treat different days with a different intensity of God. There are certain days when I really need God today. That's a self-reliant orphan heart speaking because you really need God every day. No day you need him more than you need him any others. There is, there's never a day. What I'm learning to do is just take little bits of time because if you're like me at all, and, and I hope, for your sake, you're not, but it, you can become, it can become a bit of a treadmill and you go from one thing to the next to the next to the next. You don't leave gaps and you miss the gaps. You miss hearing God's voice saying, I've got this. And you say, yeah, you know, you can't really be relied on God. I'm, I'm sorry. I've, I've prayed before and you, you let me down. So um, no, I'm going to have to fix this myself. And that's what we do. We try and fix things ourselves. That's what an orphan heart does. 
It says I'm on my own here. I'll show them. I need to sort this. I need to get this done. But we can let go of that. We can let go. And instead, we can get rid of this boulder out of the way and let the Holy Spirit flow through us so much more if we just come home. Nick said last week that repentance is more about changing our thinking than anything else. Paul, Mr. Church Planter Man, he confirms that in other places in the Bible. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's actually our thinking more that needs changing more than anything else. It's time to change our thinking over self-reliance. We're not puppets, but we are children and we have a wonderful dad. And it's time to change our thinking and it's time to let go of our orphan hearts and run to Papa. Let's stand. I'd love to pray for you. Please do just close your eyes a moment. Father, will you forgive us for where we have been our own saviour, our own fixer, our own sorter? And God, for many of us, we'll feel, feel like we've been thrown into that situation. We have no choice. But this is a spiritual thing as much as anything else, that we are not alone. We are not alone. You've never forsaken us. Father, will you show us those times, those people who are experiencing that point of pain or right now they're just naffed off with me and annoyed because of the stuff I'm saying is just prodding a wound in them. Father, will you please just tenderly show those people where you were as a dad in that awful moment? How you wrestle, Father, with releasing us to have our free will but longing to keep us close as children. And for those, Father, who have learnt self-reliance as a way of life, I pray right now that that will break in people's lives. If you know this is affecting you, would you mind just for a moment just putting your hand on your heart? I want to pray for your heart. I'm not sure your spiritual heart is in your physical heart, but we'll go with that for now. So please do, just put your hand on your heart. and I'd love to pray for you. Father, for all those people for whom this is a deal, this is one of their boulders, I pray that you will break that orphan heart, that orphan thinking. And instead, right now, Right now, you'll replace it with your Holy Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Dad, Papa. That we are not alone. We're never alone. You promised you'll never leave us or forsake us, no matter what it can look like. Help us to break free from being self-reliant. I pray, Father, burnt into our hearts and minds will be the image of that lad coming to his dad and knowing that's the safe place. And It's not really about earthly dads. It's about us 
knowing that you are a safe place. That almost no matter what happens, this is a safe place. I'm with Dad, with a very big capital D. Father, I pray that peace will reign in everyone's hearts this week. That you will continue to speak to people. You will prod them and nudge them where self-reliant habits remain. We thank you for your beautiful compassion towards us. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope you enjoyed it. For more information, visit ashfordvineyard.org or maybe drop into something if you're nearby. In the meantime, have a great week and know just how loved you are.